Well, we're going to continue our series today on the faithfulness of God. Thank you, Rod. <clears throat> and we're going to look at 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Verses 11 through 13. 2 Timothy 2, verses 11 through 13. Paul is writing to his son in the Lord. Somebody that he considers to be as significant in terms of relationship as a father and son, as a natural father and son would be. And this pastoral epistle, which it is called, is labeled so because we've got a pastor writing to somebody who needs assistance. It's not just a, a church, but he is corresponding with an individual to help them through the processes of life and leadership. The title of the message is The Faithfulness of God, 2 Timothy 2, 11 through 13. It is a trustworthy statement, for if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. 13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Lord, help us as we study. Four things about which I'd like to speak to you on this passage. One, what it means to have corpses raised. Two, how constancy promotes. Three, how there are consequences to our denial. And lastly, what it means to have conduct that is unwavering. Paul writes and starts with the idea that trustworthiness is important to recognize. He said, it is a trustworthy statement, deserving of full acceptance. Paul rarely ever says, I don't think he does at all, but he gets close every once in a while, thus says the Lord. His apostolic grace doesn't manifest itself in prophetic utterance very often. Yet, he does speak as an oracle of God when he writes, and indeed when he preached. But five times, at least five times in the pastoral epistles, he says, it is a trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance. And from this idea, we get the sense that he is trying to, to give information to Timothy that needs to be rehearsed and re-emphasized as being something that is, that is coming, not just from his opinion, but from God. Jesus never said, thus says the Lord, yet he was the most accurate prophet ever. But the reason he didn't say, say, thus says the Lord, is that he was God. So, kind of, thus says me? No. What he said was this, verily, verily, or truthfully, truthfully. So, when he was trying to make a statement that though it was true, even if he said it, I want you to listen to it with even more veracity, because it happens to be really, really true, he would say, truly, truly. Paul doesn't use that. He uses, it is a trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance. As if, like, it should not be implied that somehow his other statements, if they didn't have that preface, would be untrustworthy. They were trustworthy as well. But he was trying to bring emphasis to this moment. And thus the church would use it in the early days of Christianity as a doxology, meaning a statement deserving of re repeating over and over again because there's a lot of theology packed into those few words. Trustworthy statement. Number one, if we die with him, 
We will be raised with him. We will live with him. When we talk about corpses being raised, we have the confidence that if we expire, that there is a, there's, there's, there's another life. That's not the end. That's the beauty of Christianity, is that it, it gives you life and life eternal. So when this physical body expires, my spirit, which lives now because I have internal life that is eternal life, I don't stop living. The body quits. But God somehow in the ultimate remaking of stuff allows for all the atoms and molecules that are Brett's corporeal being to be reassembled when he appears. I don't know what that means. It says the dead in Christ will rise first. So those who are already in the grave get to come up first before everybody else who is still living get to go up. And I don't know what the going up means. I have an idea, and I like what I think, but I'm not quite sure all what it means to go up. As he descends, we ascend. And I'm not quite sure that we keep going. And we might just come back down because we are terrestrial in our orientation. And heaven is a place where we get to live after we die here until he finishes what he's going to do on the planet and let us repopulate it. Revelation 19 talks about a new heaven and a new earth. Peter talks about a new heaven and a new earth and that the old earth is going to be burned with fire until God purifies it from all the sin and we are going to get the privilege of, of being reestablished back on the planet. Now, I said a whole lot there and all of your brains are going, I've never heard that before. What, 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 what? That's okay. But I'm just letting you know that there's more after this gone. There's much more after this gone. And I'm not just looking forward, although it really looks good to talk about, and it sounds good to talk about, that which is after, this is gone, and it, the, the, the idea that I don't have to deal with this anymore, and, and sin is no longer an issue, and I'm not going to stumble over my flesh, and I won't have thoughts that are conflicting with God's word, and oh, I, it'll be just victory every day when I, when I rise. It'll be beautiful. I'm trying to figure out not so much how to get there as much as how can I bring the benefit of the resurrection power in my life now here. That there is a spiritual death that all of us need to encounter, through which we must go if we are to experience resurrection power. Now, everybody, I don't know any believer that doesn't want to experience resurrection power. In fact, I don't know many unbelievers that don't want to experience supernatural power in their life to do things that would impede them otherwise. I don't know many. Everybody wants to feel like they like know something special. Yeah, everybody wants to be a prophet at least. That's why they bet. They think, oh, I know the numbers. I know the numbers. You don't know nothing. You don't know this point spread. You don't know anything. But everybody feels like, I knew it. I knew it. And even if it's not betting, it's, I knew they were going to say that. I just knew that was going to happen. Well, why do you say it? Except that you want to feel like you're tapping into something that's not natural. Everybody wants to feel that way. But Jesus says this, you can't get to the place of experiencing supernatural stuff Resurrection power until you die. Death is a prerequisite. You want to have the ability to overcome all of your natural circumstances? I'm not saying that the natural circumstances will go away. I said, do you want to have the ability to overcome them? They may stay the same, but you're different. 
You want to have that ability to come into God and worship even when you feel like there's no reason to. To rejoice even when your life is falling apart and sadness ought to fill your soul in depression and knocking at your door. Do you want to have the ability to rejoice from the inside, not just put on a pretty face? Do you want to have that strength? You got to die. And by definition, there is no resurrection until you die. That's what it means to be raised after death. It's just like everybody wants a miracle. But nobody wants the circumstances needed to produce one. All of us want God to do something great. I want a testimony to share. I saw God come through. Well, generally, when you ask him for stuff like that, you needed him because you couldn't fix it yourself. And nobody wants to be in a position when they can't fix it themselves. Because that is, ah, help, oh, Lord, help. Everybody wants a miracle, but nobody wants the circumstances. Everybody wants resurrection power, but nobody wants to die. And you've got to die completely, not partially. You can't just die in some areas and leave the others to yourself as alive and under your jurisdiction. You've got to go to the cross. You have to bring your future, your past, your present, your finances, your relationships, your, everything, your, your, your possibility of promotion, your will to do what you want to do, everything has to be brought to the cross. And you got to die. And that death has to be complete and the surrender has to be complete. You can't partially surrender. That's an oxymoron. Either you surrender or you don't. Yet most Christians only partially surrender. Now, I gave my heart to Jesus in, in, in March of 1981. And it, it took a while for my, for my soul to catch up with what my heart had done. It took a while. When the soul catches up, we call that sanctification. Salvation is assured when the heart has changed. But sanctification is letting your soul, your actions, your mind, your will, your thoughts all line up with what you know to be true about what God has done in your heart. That takes time. And generally, God wants to speed up the process with circumstances. <laughs> they are catalysts for your maturity. If you don't have the circumstances that are adverse, then generally you don't know exactly what you need to address in your life that needs to be cleaned up. But it's only when the circumstances emerge that begin to show what's on the inside because then it comes outside. And then you say, well, I, I didn't mean to say that. Well, yes, you did. You just didn't mean for anybody to hear it. Because now that they heard it, they know who you are differently than before you said it. And now you're accountable for what you said. Well, I didn't mean to. Yeah, you did. Well, it just came out. Well, why did it come out? Sanctification is that which helps the soul catch up with what the heart has done. And so you may have given your heart to Christ a while ago. But if you don't continue on in him, Dying daily. Dying daily. Not just once. Not just one surrender. It's realizing, wow, this is what this means when I gave my heart to him 20 years ago. <laughs> I didn't know you meant this too. Because most of us come, even though we don't think it. There's no consciousness to this. Most of us come to God like this. I'm yours. Oh, that's great. I'm glad, Brett. What's that behind your back? Oh. 
oh, this, this little thing, just nothing. I'll take care of this. I'll give you everything else. What, what is that behind your back? Really, you want that? Yeah, I want your money. I want your career. I want your dreams. I want your hopes. I want everything because if I don't have everything, I don't have you. Ladies, if a guy came to you, asked you to marry him, got this relationship thing going on, it's beautiful, and, and, and you were just about to say yes, yet th there was a caveat. He said, now listen, sweetheart, I love you. I love you with all my heart, really. But there are two other ladies that I want to hang out with. <laughs> now, one of them's negotiable. I'll work with you. But, but I, I really like two. So if you're okay with that, <laughs> you realize that if you don't have all of his heart, you don't have him. In the same way, you can't give God just half. You can't give him what you want to. You have to die. And every time he begins to reveal the parts of your life that are unsanctified, it's your responsibility to say, here it is. Here it is, God. I got it. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And don't blame the circumstances. Well, if that hadn't happened, then I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't be in this. I wouldn't have said. I wouldn't have done. Really? Huh. Water. Phil, I'm going to shake it. What's going to happen? What, what, what came out? Water. Huh. Okay. Shake it now. What? Done came out? What came out? Why? Huh. You mean the circumstances didn't didn't make water come out? So the circumstances really had not much to do with what came out. It's because of what was in there. Jesus said, the enemy has nothing in me. <clears throat> so don't blame the shaking. The shaking is not the problem. It's what's on the inside that's the problem. So if it came out of you, the shaking only revealed what was in. Are you listening to me? And when God reveals what's in, that's when you know you need to get in out. That's sanctification. That is dying daily. Becoming more under the lordship of Jesus than you ever thought you needed to be. Your thoughts, your words, your actions, the motivation of your heart, your money, your relationships, your freedoms. You may have a privilege that might cause somebody else to stumble. You need to check that. Without coming and say, well, God lets me do it. He ain't mad, but I am. I don't, I don't think you ought to drink like that. Got real quiet. 
got real quiet. I just don't think, you know, it, it kind of, okay, one, but two, it, it, you start getting a little, you know, loose. And you, you start saying stuff. You're just not the same person when you. <laughs> Paul said, I, I will not eat or drink anything that causes my brother to stumble. That's what he said. He said, I don't allow my freedoms to be those which are enjoyed at other people's expense. So you maybe have the freedom to do stuff that the Bible says is fine. But if it causes somebody else to, to stumble, at that point, it no longer is free for you to do because it costs somebody else. Dying. Dying. It's painful. It's not comfortable. There's no easy way around the cross. You got to go through. But the beauty is when you go through, you do get the kind of life that is beyond your wildest dreams with respect to expectations. When I gave my heart to, to Christ in, in March of <clears throat> 1981, I lost just about everything. Now, everything is relative because I lived in America. So I still have my educational pursuits, and I still had the environment of peace. Nobody was trying to take me to jail. I didn't have my house conf confiscated, although I didn't have one. I had a bike. I didn't have my bike confiscated. Nobody was persecuting me for my faith. I had inconvenience, which is different than persecution. Please understand that hindrance is not persecution. But my family thought it was a better idea to distance themselves from me than to get close. And they loved me dearly. They just didn't like the way I was practicing my Christianity. My dad did everything but disown me, and he loved me dearly. He just thought I was nuts. I was preaching to people, trying to get folk from getting to go into hell. I, I did everything I possibly could to try to be as right as I possibly could. And my, my mom loved me, and, and she thought I was nuts. My brother and sister thought I was nuts. My daddy told me I was putting his dad, my grandfather, one foot in the grave, quote, because of my Christianity. Everybody distanced themselves from bread. And my dad said, listen, boy, you, you get rid of all this Christianity stuff, I got a $25,000 vet waiting for you right here. He wasn't talking about a doctor. He was talking about a car. I thought about it for two seconds because I was 20. <laughs> and I knew what that look would do for all the females. <laughs> it would increase my desirability in a hurry. I said, nope, I love Jesus. It took a decade. But in a decade, I led my dad to the Lord. Led my mom to the Lord. Led my brother to the Lord. My wife was instrumental in seeing my sister come to Christ. Helped her in counsel. All of their children, my brother and sister's kids, now love God. My kids love God. I led my grandfather to the Lord. As many people as I could find who breathed that called themselves fuller came to Jesus. But it was because, listen, it's because Brent died. I didn't compromise. You gotta die to see the kind of resurrection life you want. I didn't know I could have it this good. I didn't know I could have a marriage this good. I didn't know I could have a family. I dreamed of it, but I, my dreams were even too small. I didn't know I could have a church like you. I don't deserve anything I've got this good. 
God has treated me so much better than I deserve. And I am living in resurrection power every day of my life. And there's still more. I haven't tapped into everything I should, but that which I've tapped into is beyond my wildest dreams already. If I died today, I would be a really happy guy because God has squeezed as much good juice out of this little black man as I thought possible. (laughs) I didn't think any of this could happen to me, any of it. I'm just so grateful. But I'm grateful as, as a fruit of the fact that I died. I died, I surrendered, and I gave my heart to God. I didn't give half. I didn't give three quarters. I gave it all, and I never took it back. And that every opportunity he's had to reveal to me that which is still unclean in my soul, I'm yours. I just want you to know that's yours too. Take it away. I don't want it. Clean me up. And as a result, exponentially resurrection power comes to you if you'll do the same. Trustworthy statement. God is faithful. You die, you'll live. Secondly, if you endure, you'll also be raised. If you endure, you'll be raised. Endurance is that which I, about which I've already spoke. You, you just get up every day and you just do not quit giving your heart to Christ. You just, you just live right every day. You, if there's anything I learned about my athletic endeavors... Is number one, after I hung around real athletes, it's, I was not one. <laughs> but the second thing I learned is what it meant not to quit. That when I came to the edge of feeling like I could not go any further and I wanted to, to upchuck everything that was inside me because of my workout, that's the point at which I need to, to turn it on again, not stop. That's not an indicator of slow down. That's an indicator of speed up. And so what I do is I release what's on the inside and I get back at it again because I realize that there's an opponent out there that I can't change with respect to their intent. I'm going to go against somebody who is preparing really hard to stop me on every play. I can't stop that, but I can change me so I can better face that. I can't stop their drive I can't stop their intent. I can't stop their plan. They are going through the strategy necessary to try to stop me. But I can alter all of that if I am different. And so in order for me to be different, I've got to make sure I don't quit when I feel like it. I press through and figure out what it looks like on the other side of pain. What it feels like on the other side of loss. Athletics taught me that. And as a result, I understand what it means a little bit to endure. Now, it doesn't mean I'm perfect in the area. There have been a lot of times, well, let me say it this way. I've never really thought about quitting in Christianity, but I I have asked God to kill me. I'm kidding. Gosh. (laughs) Wow. I must have been too serious at that point or something. That didn't come off right at all. It's one of those when Moses said, Lord, if you don't help me with the burden of this people, take me out now. He wasn't serious. (laughs) Wow. 
It's one of those things you say in desperation because you can't say anything else. You know, quitting isn't right, but I can be closer to you if I'm, if I'm really close. Let me move on. <laughs> oh, endurance. You just get up every day and you decide to do the right thing, even if it doesn't feel like the right thing is going to help you. You just do it. And you obey God with every fiber of your being. Even if it costs you, you obey God. And you watch what it looks like on the other end. Because then, when you get through endurance and perseverance, you get promoted. If we endure, we will reign. When I was 15, we had to start lifting weights for football. And I'd, I'd really never done that before. I was a freshman in college. or I mean, excuse me, a freshman in high school, sophomore, something like that. And we'd never really done it. And so we started lifting. I, and, and they put 125 pounds on the bench press. This might not mean much for most of you, but those of you who work out know what this means. I was all at 5'5 five, five and 130 pounds. I couldn't lift 125. <laughs> and I thought, I'll never make it at the varsity level. This is terrible. It's terrible. But I kept working out, so I started at 90. And I went to 110. Then I went to 115. Then I got 125 three or four times. I said, oh. And by the time I was a senior, I did a whole lot more. Nothing that would impress you, so I'm not going to tell you the number. But I did a whole lot more. <laughs> and then when I went back to 125, I thought, boy, this used to be hard. But I don't even notice that it was hard now. There's something about not just going through but growing through. That when your circumstances that seem impossible for you to lift right now are endured by you and you develop the strength necessary to come out better than when you went in, you grow through the process and now you're able to lift different circumstances of heavier weight. And so God makes you different at every new intersection of difficulty. And as a result, when you get back to 125, you don't even feel it anymore. And that's why you, folks are, are panicking Going through life, they, I don't know what I'm going to do. You're, I'm good. But you're, you don't have, it's really, I'm good. Because you've lifted this before. You've grown through that. And now you can face it differently. In other words, when 125 used to rule you, now you rule it. You reign as a result of your endurance. Are you listening? That's why it's important for you to press through and find God in the middle of your difficulty rather than just going through and coming out the same as when you went in. Maybe a little worse because now you're bitter rather than better. If you endure right, you're going to the, to the realm of reigning. Thirdly, if you deny him, he'll deny you. Now, Paul is speaking in couplets here or parallelisms. He's almost kind of hearkening back to the proverbial ways of communicating, Proverbs, where the writer will say one or two things that sound similar, but they are distinct and they have little nuances that are different. And then they'll, the writer will say um, something that, that sounds opposite of what he just said in order to emphasize and bring clarity to the, to the prior. And we call them parallelisms if they are similar or reverse parallelisms if they're opposites. And Paul is kind of using this kind of literary tactic in order to convey something. So what you've got are two affirmatives and then next, two negatives. They all work together to amplify one particular truth 
the faithfulness of God. And so he says, you die, you live. You endure, you reign. You deny, you're going to be denied. Now, that's important for us to identify with Jesus. I know it's difficult when your friends are around and, you know, those people who have an idea about who you are without Jesus. They really don't know you in church. If they saw you in church, you'd say, hi. (laughs) Yeah, I do this. And they were over there, and then they saw you in church, and you were lifting your hands, and and they never seen you like that at all. And then they, oh, you, you, yeah, yeah. How you doing? You enjoy it? <laughs> you know, now they have to define you differently. And, and you're scrambling to try to figure out the words to say because they're wondering not just who you are, but how come you haven't been this way when I've known you in other places? Who are you really? Because you don't express this side of you ever. Now you're thinking, okay, I won't lift my hands next time I come to church. No, that's not the solution. That's not the solution. The solution is to to let you know you need to identify with him in every way in front of all the friends so they understand who he is and who he is through you. If you don't really identify with Jesus, with your friends, you're tacitly denying him. Jesus is the most important relationship you've got in your life. The most. Don't deny him. Hear me. Listen to me on this point. If you don't get anything out of this, get this. He he identified with you and your mess. Whose sin did he take but yours? He identified with you in death. He didn't mind taking your shame, taking your rejection. I beg you, this is why he's strong in this point. Matthew 10, verse 32 32 and 33. If you confess me before men, I'll confess you before daddy. You deny me before men, same on you. I'll deny you before my father in heaven. Why? Because he's got a lot of invested stuff in you. He's given his life for your benefit. He's given you his word. He's given you the examples of history to live well. He left you on the planet. Why? Not so that you can just suck up resources, but that you might help other people come to the knowledge of the truth. That's why he left you on the planet. What other reason would you be here? I mean, if it was all about just having a closer relationship with Jesus, just you and him, then somebody should have done you a favor when they baptized you in the pool and left you down just a little bit longer. Let you go on and be with Jesus. I know that's bad, but hear me. I'm making a point. Why are you here if not to identify with him in front of others? What is the purpose of you being here? If it's all about just you and Jesus, you would have a much closer walk with him in glory. You wouldn't have to work through all this stuff here. But if it's about you helping other people, then you have a purpose on the planet. And if you deny that purpose after all he's given you, not only everything I mentioned, but the power of the Holy Spirit to be an excellent witness. If you deny that purpose after he has invested so much in you and and identified with you in your pain and shame, 
He, without apology, says, I don't know you either. I don't know who you are. I, I died for you, but I can't figure you out at all. Denying him is not just about not identifying with him in his person. It's also about, about not giving him what he deserves, denying him what he deserves. Jesus explained it like this in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out devils and did we not perform many miracles? And I will tell them plainly, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, for I never knew you. Now that's a wild passage. Because when you can cast out a demon, when you can perform a miracle, and you can prophesy, you got some spiritual experience. You got some power on your life. You can exercise gifts for the benefit of people. That's amazing. I mean, one out of 10,000 can do that on the regular. That's amazing. And then you can testify about it to God as at knowing it really happened. You were lying. This really happened. And Jesus says, unimpressed. Depart from me, you you who practice lawlessness. I didn't know you. See, these guys were trying to substitute their performance for their obedience. And God is really unimpressed with your performance. He desires it because it benefits people. But he's unimpressed. And the reason he's unimpressed is a whole lot like when my son, who was seven, came to me on my birthday, and he, he and his mama went out and bought me a gift. And uh, dads get socks and underwears at that, at that point. That, that's what we get. And so he was excited. I mean, he, and when Joseph, my eldest, when he was seven, <clears throat> got, got excited, he would lick his lips <laughs> and bat his eyes, and I knew he was excited, but he, and he gave daddy the gift. And I was just so overjoyed. I said, thank you, boy. That's amazing. That's just wonderful. Gave him a big hug. We had ice cream and cake. And as I was hugging him, the Holy Spirit spoke to me and said, you, you do this to me all the time. I didn't know what he meant. I had no idea what he was talking about. So I did all the ice cream and cake with the family, ran upstairs, said, God, what do you mean I do this to you all the time? Yeah, you're just like Joseph. Whenever you go on a missions trip, you preach a good sermon, you help somebody, you come to me like this. Is that good, God? Here's a gift for you. I said, you're right, I do. He said, the difference between you and me and you and him is that you know I gave you the power to do it, and so you're not trying to take credit for it. He has no idea you gave him the money to buy your own gift. <laughs> These guys had no idea God gave them the money to buy him a gift. Wow. They had no idea God gave him the power to purchase the resources necessary to bless him with them. And so they were trying to brag to God, this is why God's unimpressed. So, like, when you cast out the devil, whose name did you use? Uh, yours. Huh, yeah. When, when you prophesied, how did you do that? Was it like, thus says Brett, or thus says the Lord? <sighs> there, yeah, thus says the Lord, your, your words. 
when you pray for that person for the miracle and they were lame and they, they walked, did you use your name or mine? Yours. Now, you want me to be impressed that I did everything through you? And you want that to be a substitute for obeying me? I, don't, I can't figure you out. I don't know you. And in this passage, he says, I deny you. This is what he's saying. I deny you access to my presence because of your lack of obedience. What you, have, what you should have given me, you have denied me. I required obedience. Because you didn't give it to me, I deny you access to my presence. Now, we think that somehow our knowledge of God is going to get us access at some level. We think so. That we, we say we know God. And we feel pretty confident about knowing him. But the problem is we are finite and he is infinite. How much, how much can the finite know of the infinite? Do, do you know infinite is the spatial version of eternity or eternal? Eternal represents time. Infinite represents space. And it's even oxymoronic to talk about infinite as in space because space represents generally boundaries. But with infinity, there are none. It just keeps going. So if we were to talk about the knowledge that is in the space called infinity, how much of infinity do you really know? Let's microscopic. If it filled a thimble, you'd be really blessed. Really blessed. So when you talk about knowing God, how much do you really know? You can't brag about it because he's infinite. We know God much like we know celebrities. We've seen him work. We watch their films. We watch him play on the field. We've gotten their autograph. When we see him in the mall, Tom Cruise! Denzel, that Denzel Washington, that, I'm going to get his on. Denzel, I love your movies. Woo! Mm, you coming out in Magnificent Seven? I'm going to see that one too. You, you need an Oscar. You need an Oscar for that one. I ain't even seen it yet. You need an Oscar. We're talking to him like, we're talking to him like we know him. And we don't know him. But we feel like we know him because we've heard him and we've seen him. But show up at his house on Friday night for dinner. <laughs> Knock on the door. Denzel, Mr. Washington. May I help you? Yeah, I'm here for dinner. Who are you? I, 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 we, I, I, took your, I got your autograph last week. I saw all your films. I heard you do an interview on Oprah. I've read all your, your, your commentaries, and, and I, I don't know you. It doesn't matter how much you know him. In order to get access to his house, he's got to know you. Jesus said, I can't figure you out. You didn't obey me. Obedience gives you access because you denied him the privilege of what he desired. He denies you access. You deny him, he denies you. You don't want there to be a pause between you saying hi to Jesus and him saying your name. Cynthia walks in. I promise you it's going to go like this. Cynthia's my wife. 
hello, Jesus, come on in and sit here. No break. He might not even let her, hello, Jesus, get all the way out. That's how much she loves God. Best Christian I know right here. It's just one of those, hello, come on in. With some of y'all, hello, Jesus. What's your name? Brett. There was a Brett in the 17th century. Huh. I, I don't seem to remember. Acknowledge who he is, both in person and in deed. Obey him so you get access. Lastly, the ability to have conduct that is unwavering. See, God is faithful, and this kind of envelops everything else that has been said. He is faithful, even when we aren't. And this is, this, there are two aspects of this that I want to concentrate on, and I'm closing. Not only do we have confidence and assurance that goes beyond our ability to obey, which gives us good sleep at night because we know that even if we aren't perfect, he is. And he will keep us even in our imperfection. That when we are faithless, he's not. Our salvation is not dependent upon doing right. Our fellowship with him is. Sometimes our access to his presence is. But our salvation is not. Our salvation is dependent on one thing, what he did on the cross and our acceptance of it. That's all it is. And so when we mess up, it doesn't mean now we're disqualified from going to glory. And he has to decide and redecide over and again every time we blow it. No, he's faithful to what he said regarding what salvation looks like, even when we are faithless. And that's encouraging. Yet there's another aspect of this too. In that, when we are faithless, even though it has nothing to do with our eternal security, his faithfulness does have a lot to do with the lessons we need to learn from being faithless. His faithfulness will teach us lessons because he is obedient to his word and he makes sure that we understand that we shouldn't do what caused us to now have to learn lessons again. We shouldn't have to repeat the fourth grade. He is faithful to instruct us and sometimes give us the information that we don't like in order for us to never go through that again. If you commit adultery, you still go into heaven, but you, go, you got a lot to live through here. You're going to have to learn some lessons here, and he is faithful to teach you those so you don't do it again. Are you listening to me? Our God disciplines us, and for that we ought to be grateful. He chastises us when we blow it as a proof of his love for us. It was hard for me to accept this as I shut down. That my coach would tell me, Brett, the only reason I'm going on you because I believe in you. Believe in me less. <laughs> you know, you just think, hey, I need a little encouragement. You just beat me down every moment of the day. Call me names, saying I can't play. That doesn't help a brother. I'm just letting you know. I didn't say all that. That's what I thought. 
There's something about the faithfulness of God, even when the discipline comes, that ought to make us worship. And say, oh, Lord, I was faithless, but I'm grateful that you not only keep me, but you teach me. Thank you. You are faithful to your word that disciplines me so I can live right better. And this is the beauty about the, the God who is faithful, is that he endures with us. He strengthens us. He gives us promises and he keeps them because he cannot deny himself. He and his word are synonymous. In the beginning was the word, John 1, and the word was with God, and the word was God, John 1, 2. He was in the beginning with God. So we see that God gives personality to his word in calling it Jesus. So there's no way to separate him from his word. He and his word are synonymous. So if he's going to be faithful, he's going to be faithful to his word. And he cannot deny his word because he cannot deny himself. This is the beauty of our God and, and allows us the privilege of sleeping good, knowing that our God is on the case. He is working our salvation out, helping us to live right and best and strengthening us, giving us hope every day that we can be different and better than we are today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I ask for your grace and mercy. Empower us, strengthen us to be the kind of men and women that can honor you with the words of our mouth and with all of our life.